The following presentation is from North Pine Baptist Church. We trust that it will help you learn more about God and His message for the world. For more information and to connect with us, visit npbc.org.au. And he rips her carcass in two 
almost one part of the carcass makes the earth, and the other part is stuck to the skies. And then later, uh, Marduk, you know, the patron god of Babylon, slays Hindu, and from his blood fashions mankind. So in the ancient Near East, the authority and power of the gods was invariably linked to the authority and power of the city or empire linked to that god. Babylon's dominance proved the power of Marduk. And earlier in Mesopotamian history, Assyria's dominance proved the power of their pagan god, Asherah. So no single god was ever thought to have absolute power or authority. The existence of other gods, in fact, was never doubted by the Mesopotamians. The dominance of any particular god or gods was only as strong as the empire associated with it with them. Also, the gods, as I said earlier, had specific, specific areas of responsibility. For example, in um, ancient Mesopotamian religion, Anu is the god of the sky and the lord of constellations and the father of the gods. Ishtar is the goddess of fertility and love and sex and war. And Nabu is the god of wisdom and writing. And similarly, and you probably know this more clearly or are more familiar with it, the many deities of ancient Egypt were associated with specific functions. Uh, Anubis is the god of the dead, the one who carries the dead across uh, through the underworld to uh, be judged. Um, Hapi, Z-P-I, is the personification of the Nile blood. And Horus, the one depicted as a falcon, is linked to the sky and the sun and kingship and protection and healing. These areas of responsibility or function are linked with those elements of the natural world and culture associated most closely with mid human experience. Thus, when Psalm 1 is written, uh, sorry, Psalm 8 is written, verse 1, when, the, when we keep in mind the religious context of its time, its claims are spectacularly radical. We've been so influenced by a Christian understanding of God, whether we believe in God or not, that we automatically assume that when we speak of God, we're speaking of an all-powerful being who rules the universe. But the, the peoples of the ancient Near East, in Mesopotamia, did not think this way. Their gods, as powerful as they were, were much smaller and much more limited. It's probably worthwhile for us to think about our context as well before exploring the remainder of Psalm 8 or looking at it properly. We live in a privileged West where the dominant worldview is largely grounded in a belief in the authority of the individual, or the authority of some god out there, and where it's generally accepted that religious views are relegated to the sphere of the private and have no place in the public square. Okay. Oh, is this an It's already there because of the system of use. Uh, so we have a look at verse 1. O Lord, our Lord. This is just the first line. Yahweh, have a Yahweh is the proper name for Israel's God. It's his covenant name. It's the name by which Israel knew God. Just like the Babylonians knew their God as Marduk, or the Assyrians as Asher. It is Yahweh who is Israel's Lord, his Adonai, which is their Elohim. He's his sovereign, the controller, the master. 
Now, this, in a sense, is no different from the claim that any other Mesopotamian city or empire might make. But the next line is the radical bit. How majestic is your name in all the earth? Right? In all the earth. Other Mesopotamians might make a similar claim about their gods, but the claim would only be thought to be warranted so long as that empire or city remained dominant. Not so Israel's God. His power and authority is located in him alone. It is independent of Israel's national success. In fact, Israel's failure is understood in terms of God's absolute sovereignty. He punishes his wayward people when they breach the terms of the covenant. Israel doesn't need to succeed as a geopolitical entity for their God's name to be considered excellent or majestic. It is excellent not just because uh, he is powerful, but also because he is morally uncompromising and is able to judge and carry out his judgment. So what David is actually claiming is that Israel's God's authority is not limited to, limited to Israel. It extends to every nation of the earth, and it doesn't matter what they claim to the contrary. This is an astonishing radical claim, especially when it's made by a relatively small nation, a people who could not back up such a claim with depending on the exercise of military might. I think also how radical a claim it is in the context of the world of the 21st century. A world in which technology seems to provide a solution for just about every problem health, transport, communication, you name it. It is pretty easy for us, and we probably do it unintentionally quite often, to simply to buy into such a world view. And for many of us, that is the dominant ultimate theme. And closer to home, I mean, here, how ludicrous, almost laughable such claims about God, which I do believe in, must seem to be utterly. Especially so if it's thought that the, the veracity of such claims would be in any way on us. I just think about ourselves. We want to reflect for a moment. What are we doing? God. Well, I think around, I suspect, probably you would. We don't have too much power in ourselves. If God's greatness depended on our greatness, we'd be pretty feeble God, wouldn't we? But God's greatness depends on God alone. That's it. So David then makes an even greater claim when he writes, You have set your glory above the heavens. You have set your glory above the heavens. You see, Yahweh's excellence is so great that even the whole world can't contain it. Because his glory has to be set above the heavens. It's that big, beyond the earth, beyond the skies, above the heavens. It's set, it's just by him. Set by him, not by anybody else. No one determines that. He has set it himself. Why? Because there is no other who could do so, since there is none greater than him. Again, a claim such as this uh, would not be made by any Mesopotamian deity, for they are very much a part of the universe. Rather than being above the heavens, 
they might see the heavens or be a personification of the heavens or even control some aspect of the heavens like storms or other parts of the weather, the rains and such things. The Mesopotamian gods seem to be more akin to creatures than creator. And when they do create, they make stuff out of pre-existing materials. They do not make ex nihilo from nothing. And as C.S. Lewis observed in his reflections on the Psalms, he says, when the curtain rises in these creationness, there are always some properties already on the stage and some sort of drama is proceeding. There's stuff already there, stuff already happening. No Mesopotamian god claims to be the one and only, the originator, the actual creator. Who is this god makes such claims? Verse 2. It says, Out of the mouth of babes, or babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. A lot of contrast. Clearly, the language here is hyperbolically exaggerated, but David uses this language to highlight something of the power of God. Unlike the nations about Israel, or living around Israel, God does not need large armies. Or great heroes to stop an enemy in his tracks. There's always God's power at play and not the prowess of men or women. I find it interesting that um, you know, one of the most successful um, film series in our era is the Marvel series. And the, the Marvel series includes always heroes heroes who rise above, heroes who conquer, and success and failure and all the rest of it. And you know, the salvation of the world depends on the activity of heroes. God's not like that. God uses the little things out of the mouths of babies, infants. You see, there, there are plenty of examples of God displaying his strength using what in any other context would be considered inadequate for the task. There was Moses, for example, a reluctant leader who overcomes the might of Egypt. And it's pantheon of gods. There's Gideon, his army of 300 men who defeated the Midianites with little more than a light show and a bunch of shouting. There's David, the teenager who killed the giant Goliath with a sling and a stone. And in these examples and more, God shows that he chooses to work his purposes through the truth. And in doing so, he reveals what he values. He values a humble. And he makes it clear that it is him who is at work, and none of those who do those things themselves in their own strength. And in the New Testament, of course, he works the same way. Consider the birth of Jesus, whose mother was a young woman of no social standing of any note. And listen to her words. In Luke chapter 1, just a segment from it, and that was the Magnificat. Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for why he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their throne, and exalted those of humble estate, and has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich with sent them free. 
really God. So we understood what it is that God is like. You know, he champions the conflict. He champions the conflict. He works through to, to them to achieve his ultimate mighty purposes. That's not for us. It doesn't heal us. It doesn't heal us. Every single time a human being comes to acknowledge Jesus as Lord, and that miraculously powerful thing has occurred. Remember reading at C.S. Lewis once commented that an individual person is greater than a nation. Because in a sense, a nation is a concept. It's a gathering of people. But in, in, in it, it's, it falls. It's temporary. But a saved person is eternal. A saved person is eternal. And consider also Jesus' own application of Psalm 8, verse 2, in response to the Pharisees after they returned papers in the temple. So in uh, Matthew 21. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. And when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying in the temple, Hosanna, saved, uh, to the Son of God, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read of the mouths of infants and nursing babies who have prepared faith? So here's Jesus telling his accuser who he was and who they were. And since the babes and nursing infants praise God in Psalm 8, it was probably from the Greek version of Psalm, by the way, Jesus is identifying himself here as God, because that's who this place is directed to in Psalm 8. So that's me. In this, Jesus also identified the indignant scribes and the teachers of the law as the enemy and the danger. Also described in this psalm. Jesus applies the psalm to himself. He applies the psalm to those who are giving him praise. And he applies the psalm to those who are Christian. And much of what David declared in um, verse 2 of Psalm 8 is also declared by Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He says, For consider your calling, brothers. And can't we put ourselves in here? Look at our own names, consider your calling. Bread. Bread. Which bread's here? Peter. Certainly Peter. Um, but all of us, pick your own name there. Consider your calling. Bread. 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 Not many of you were wise according to the world this morning. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to Strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that it is written, the only boast boast in the Lord. The only boast boast in the Lord. And of course, the enemy behind all opposition to God is Satan, the evil one, the father of lies. And thus, it's not hard to see that praises to God, spoken by babies and infants, since our statements of truth are sufficient to silence the enemy and the avenger. Verses 3 to 5, there are, I look at your heavens. 
And where does he get them? Is the moon in the skies and the setting place? What is man? He reminds him, son of man, birth of him. And yet he has made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. Have a look at the heavens. Here we go, quite regular part of the street lights as well as it found itself by all struck by their vastness. Apparently, I've read that with the naked eye, you can see about 5,000 stars. So, children, homework tonight is to go outside, look at the sky, see if you can count, see the stars at the count. 5,000 stars. Now, that seems a lot. Using some of those giant mirror telescopes in some of the major observatories around the world, apparently you can see a billion stars. That's like a lot to me. And I've also read, because I know nothing about this stuff, I just read it. I've also read that if you travel at the speed of light, it would take 40 billion years to reach the universe. Quite a few. If that's the case, and insignificant, pretty poor, really poor, in comparison to that. Ian David embellishes the picture, his painting of the greatness of God, in the morning he says that the heavens are the work of God's fingers. Fingers. You know, again, this is one that spoke creation in existence, but here he says another picture. Fingers. Well, we know God doesn't just have fingers, but it's just how easy it is. Well, most of us can't even open a jar with our fingers. Yeah. Some of us have to ask our wives to do it for us. Although in um, school, on occasion, I was teaching there, and one woman had a particular, a big problem as part of my wife's marriage counseling for the future. That one of the reasons for marriage is that you need someone to open a jar. And then according again to Anima Arish, you know, the Babylonian creation myth, the, the heavens are the result of war amongst the gods. So the body of Tiamat, as we said before, being torn apart the makes the heavens and the earth, but not so with God. He is so powerful that the heavens are the product of his fingers, as though it's just a trifling thing for him. It is something of no effort. Knowing then how great God is and how apparently small and insignificant we are, David then poses the question, what is man? Mindful of him, son of man, that you care for him. So, with the greatness of the heavens in mind, David wonders why it is that God thinks or is mindful of man, mankind, why he remembers him. It's just interesting to note that the, the word used or translated mindful or mind, or remembered, is also used in reference to Noah and a lot of other places that are in the Old Testament. And in, in the reference to Noah, the offerings of the ark at the end of the time of the ship. God says, remember the Noah and those occupants. And he said a wind to cause the flood waters to recede in dry the land, and so dry land did not appear. When God is said to remember or is mindful, it's not to suggest in any way that he's ever forgotten. Rather, it's an indicator of care and concern, and it's often a signal that God is about to act. And it's worth noting, too, that the word translated man in that first line is kinosh. It's a word used of ordinary man, man in his frailty. And thus, we can, we can sense the wonder 
of the incredulity of David's question, why is God is so great? Why is he mindful of prior humanity? And then in the next line, human beings are called son of man, or ben Adam, the son of the earth, the son of the soil. Remember, Adam is made of the earth, and so it's called Adam, it means everything. The contrast here is incredibly graphic. You have the greatness of the heavens contrasted with the creatures made from the dust of the ground. That's what creates us to be. The reality is, there is nothing in us that merits or warrants God's favor. Even before the fall, it is grace alone. Grace alone. And verse 5 indicates the degree of Perigus Erics. He made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with honor, with glory, and honor. We are, in fact, the pinnacle of creation. Although we have much in common with um, the animal kingdom, God has higher purposes in mind for us. I think one of the great errors and tragedies of the modern era is this, is that this godly designation has been forgotten or rejected. Yeah, many, uh, many people regard animals as being uh, equal to humans in terms of their rights, or that people only deal with it because of a larger brain. You know, groups like uh, people, you know, people for the ethical treatment of animals, despite the, the work they might do of a positive nature in preventing cruelty, often think that animals have rights similar to those of humans. Well-known philosopher and ethicist Peter Singer has argued that animals have a greater right to life than a disabled human being. Such views seem to contrary to God's designation. They diminish the dignity and purpose of humans given by God at the point of creation. It's also worth noting that the word little to refer to nature or status, like for example, compared to the Elohim, the heavenly beings, gods, or the angels, um, is, is smaller. Angels are immortal, they're not. They can also refer to time, but it can be a little while. Because human beings are a little lower than the angels or Elohim, is a temporary condition. We will, in our glorified state, by virtue of the cross work of Jesus, be elevated above angels, as Paul indicates in, indicates in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 3. Do you not know that we will judge angels? You see also Hebrews 2, where it says, Now it was not to angels that God suggested the world to come, of which we are speaking. It's been testified somewhere. Well, there's no real multiple of them. The Son of Man is perfect. You make him a little while lower. Well, that's that? A little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to Him. The nature of the Father Peter is primarily referring to Jesus, who is the ideal human, but is foreshadowing what we will become. The Son may be Christmas. But we see Him who, a little, uh, for a little while, was made lower than the angels, and Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, that the grace of God might be that. We might taste death for everyone. So that which Jesus has experienced, the status that Jesus has achieved, is also the status that we will be granted, we will be given 
ruler and owner. We will be leaders. We will judge angels. So if we start seeing them beating ourselves up because of how pathetic we are, certainly we're probably right. But there's something much more in store. There's something much more in store in speaking of the very power and presence of God. So you've given dominion over the works of your hands, you put all things under his feet, sheep and oxen, beasts of the field, birds of the, he- of the heavens, fish of the sea, whatever passes on the path of the sea. Here David quotes from Genesis chapter 1 verse 26, the passage that recalls the mandate which humans, for which humans were created. That is, to have dominion over the things God's made. We are God's viceroys, the stewards over the created order, over the animal kingdom, as God's representatives, serving his interests that he might be glorified. I forgot the name David Music uh, right with the, he says, as part of this authority, mankind has a responsibility to wisely manage the creatures and resources of this earth in a way that gives God glory and is good for man. It means that it is wrong to see man as merely part of the ecosystem, thus just, just, just denying uh, his God-ordained dominion. It's also wrong for man to abuse the ecosystem, thus making him a bad manager, but that which ultimately belongs to God. He quotes Psalm 24, The earth is the Lord, and the fullness thereof, the world, and those who dwell therein. But man, do you notice, in the garden, attempted to usurp God's rule, and we now live with the consequences of that rebellion. Rather than enjoying our God-honoring, fruitful, productive stewardship over the earth, we've diminished it, engaged it. Rather than seeking to glorify God by means of our dominion over the works of God's hands, we've allowed material things very often to have dominion over us. Now, in the ancient world, we see this in Romans chapter 1, verse 23, they worship elements of creation. There are images that look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. But yet, Rather than worshipping the Creator, in the 21st century, in our world, we also worship what are, in effect, elements of creation, money, status, and power. And increasingly, we worship ourselves as we declare personal autonomy to be above all other authorities. Have you seen some this is the poetry letters? And I'm sure most people are here. And it goes without saying, I guess. But uh, for those who are great fans of Gerard Manley Hopkins, he captured quite vividly uh, some of this in his poem, Gods of Brandy. And we're not going to read through the whole poem, just to, but I would um, read out aloud the bit that I have. So this is just verse 1. It says this, so you can look at the uh, bold exception. You can read quickly in your minds the rest. But what you read from this, it actually says, people can look like God. Why do men now not look like God? Because God can obey them. Um, it goes on. Generators, put it up here. Generators have trod, 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 and all this smooth with clay, the field smooth with toil, and wears man's smudge and shares man's smell. The same family, nor can it feel in clay. And also, reference there is Moses in the burning bush, who was asked to hold the paper his shoes was a holy ground. The earth bears the stain of sinful humanity. It 
a simple prayer of humility is really just an act of grace worthy of praise. So David ends the psalm the way he began it. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Yet, though the largest portion of the psalm speaks of mankind, the God has made him with a glorious purpose in mind that, that the God who made all that is and his glory cannot be contained even by the heavens, keeps a people vast and willing to share his glory with us. Leads David incredulous with wonder. Psalm 8 is ultimately a song of praise to God. It begins and ends with a declaration of God's majesty, of his excellence. It is God who makes man to serve the purposes which he has determined. It is God who has ordered his creation as he sees fit. It is God who has chosen uh, to enter into a personal relationship with us humans. It is God who has revealed himself as powerful and majestic and glorious, but also personal, humble, and loving. And thus, we should say with David, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. O Lord, our Lord, your name is majestic, your name is excellent. And we thank you for the grace you have shown to us, that you have, you have sent your son Jesus to humble himself, to die upon a cross, that we might know your suffering. Thank you that you have chosen to enter into a relationship with us. And if you have a plan, inexplicable plan, to glorify and honor us, your son and Lord. But Father, we do echo the word today. O Lord, our Lord, our majestic is your name in all the world. Amen. Thanks for joining us for this presentation from North Pine Baptist Church. For more information and to connect with us, visit npbc.org.au.